Welcome everyone to the live stream of Barabbas Road Church. I'm standing in front of a brand new pulpit that we're going to be using on Tuesday night, so I'm very excited about that. Uh, It's luxurious and spacious. A couple announcements we want to give you if you're checking in with us on Facebook. um, On our website on Barabbas.com, we have uh, various resources you can uh, use while you're watching the sermon. Um, On Barabbas.com, if if you go down, you'll see uh, there's slides, sermon slides with the verses I'm going to turn to. Uh, that's really helpful. So if you want to follow along, that's, that's a nice thing. Also, there's um, a set of sermon notes that you can look at uh, and, and possibly take notes on that. That's a really helpful thing. Uh, there's a children's church resource, so you can uh, use that to, to do church with your kids at home. Um, and also, if, you're, if you want to take part in giving at the end of the service or at any point, there's a, a giving tab that you can be a part of and uh, take part in that as well. And as we go through the sermon, all these things might be super relevant. Um, in terms of other announcements, we just want to let you know we're uh, working very diligently to try to figure out uh, space for us to open up. Um, it's a logistical challenge. Uh, at this point in time, um, hotels and the various places we're looking at, uh, it's, it's a tricky thing. Um, but my hope uh, is that uh, the first week of June uh, that we'll be able to have service as a church. That's my, my hope. Um, so we'll keep you posted as we go from there. Uh, if you have any questions about our stance on all these things, I'd refer you back to last Tuesday's um, uh, Theology and Apologetics. In any case, though, we're going to be in Exodus today. So if you can find yourself in your Bible to Exodus chapter 35, we're, going to, we're getting towards the end here, so we're going to take this carefully. But start in Exodus 35, verse 1, and we're going to go to chapter 36, verse 7. So if you're at home and you want to take part in this, you want to stand with me, go ahead and stand. And I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll jump into the sermon. This is the reading of God's holy word. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, its tents, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases. The ark with its poles, the mercy seat and the veil of the screen. The table with its poles and all its utensils and the bread of the presence. The lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps and the oil for the light. And the altar of incense with its poles and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. And the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screens for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came both men and women, all who were of a willing heart brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who can make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, see, the Lord is called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise 
artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and Aholiab, every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution of the people of Israel that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and the word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Let's pray. Father, as I'm standing in a ministry being built, in a ministry center being built right now by worshipers from this church uh, that are working so tirelessly in worship to you as we think upon the, the task of coming together as a church to meet physically and the, the, the things necessary for that to be in place. As we come to this passage, a passage that I'm, I'm guessing that many of us read past in our, in our Bible reading and skip through and skim the details. Father, you've brought these details, you've repeated these details as a crescendo to the people actually beginning to actually worship you in real space and time. I pray, Father, we would understand the impact that you want us to have from this passage. I pray for those that don't know you today, that they'd be saved. I pray for those that do know you, Father, that we would be encouraged not only to be bold and go forward, but encouraged to be able to worship you with our full hearts. God, we praise you and ask you to use this sermon for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if, to begin the sermon here, I want to kind of set this up for a minute. This is a, an interesting passage we're in, and there's a lot we can talk about, but I want to begin in, a, in Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to cover a lot of uh, you know, ground that I've covered before, and we're going to see that this is a passage that largely is repeating itself from earlier sections. So if it sounds familiar, you're not imagining things. Um, if it's your first time here, if you go back on our, our website, you can look at sermons back from Exodus 25, 24 all the way up to 30 and, and whatnot, and you're going to notice there's a, a, a bunch of similarities here, but I want to start in Ephesians chapter six and kind of establish some context here. In Ephesians six, we're seeing that the apostle Paul in this letter is describing what's called the table list of that you see in Ephesians. You'll see it in Colossians. Uh, it's mentioned in Romans. And this is basically a table list of the various roles you see in society. Okay. And so in these roles in this table list, you're basically looking at how People are to worship the Lord. And it's interesting because you see it in Romans, you see it in Ephesians and Colossians that the Apostle Paul gives this premise of here's what it looks like to worship God. And lest we, you know, are wondering what that looks like, he then starts going through these roles that we face in our lives. And so one of the pictures that we see after talking about wives in verse 22 of chapter five and husbands, you know, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church. Then in chapter six, verse one, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Now I think it's important to remember that in these sections, the subject matter of wives, husbands, in this case, children, and their focus on the, the family in this way is a focus upon worship. And I think it's so appropriate here on Mother's Day that we look at mothers as a picture of worship that I think pictures where we're going with this sermon. So let's take a quick look at a video. I love how the dad in that video was basically just the guy that tickled the kids and that was about it. But uh, happy Mother's Day, moms. Just want to, uh, let's turn to Colossians chapter two, though. I want to kind of bolster this point as we get into our passage in, a, in um, Exodus. So Colossians chapter two, uh, the apostle Paul, before he gets to that same you know, table list that I referred to in Ephesians, that same section where he describes the, you know, the, the roles that we take in our lives. Um, he begins in chapter two, and I, I think really shows us what his concern is. So Paul in Colossians, he's writing to this church that uh, was a great church. They're doing awesome, but the, there's a, a challenge in the church that there's some sort of false teaching and folks that were trying to get them to go back to the law, perhaps, or to, to look and follow these ritualistic ways of worshiping the Lord. And so Paul says in chapter two of Colossians, he says, for I want you to know 
how great a struggle I have for you. He's talking to the church and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, in w- which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, understand right now when he's referring to Christ, there's a, a group that was trying to get folks to see that, hey, to worship the Lord, we needed to go in this, this sort of a proto-gnostic, a, a, a step-by-step approach. To, as you get more knowledge, you get a, a more deep and intimate way of worshiping the Lord. Paul's crushing all of that and saying that, look, you already have everything you need in Christ to worship God right now. You're already spiritual in Christ. He goes, verse four, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith. So Paul was concerned here for them to understand the full scope of their New Testament worship. And he's moving forward into showing them how this New Testament worship is going to be played out, listing that table list at the altar of ordinary everyday life. In other words, whereas in Exodus, we see, um, you know, a tabernacle, we see a priesthood, we see a tent, we see sacrifices. In the New Testament, we don't have those things and we're not called to go back to them. What Paul's showing here is that in Christ, we have a new way of perceiving of our worship of the Lord. And so what does the altar look like for us? And if you look at Colossians and you go a little bit forward, he's going to say in uh, chapter three, put on the new self. And he's going to talk about Christian households in chapter 318, wives, husbands, you know, so on and so forth, employers, employees, just like in Ephesians. Okay. But let me keep going. He says in verse six of chapter two, as you received, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, that's by grace through faith. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So we didn't come to Christ through this ritualistic approach. We came to Christ by grace through faith, okay? He says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So in verse eight and going on, he's gonna show a contrast to these elemental spirits, this, this idea of, a lesser form of worship. And he's ultimately referring back in some ways to our passage in Exodus. He, he goes on and says in verse nine, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, remember where we are in Exodus this, this far, the, the Jewish people are now building a tabernacle to picture God's presence among them. And we know that the tabernacle is pointing forward ultimately to Christ. Christ is the, the living temple of God among us. And so he's trying to remind us that, look, we see the whole, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ and ultimately in us, the church, the living stones. And he goes on in verse 10 and says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So he's referring to those that would follow like the covenant, the old covenant that you, you entered into, you showed you were part of through circumcision in the Old Testament. He says, look, Christ has already accomplished this in the new. How? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. I want to make one more point here. He's not calling for a physical ritual baptism to cause you to be saved. He's referring to what we picture in our baptism, which is that in Christ, I died and I was raised again in Christ. Verse 13, he says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing to the cross. So that's essentially what our baptism is picturing. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Verse 16, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So notice in verse 17, it seems that Paul is throwing Exodus, our passage today, a little bit under the bus. And make no mistake, he's not actually doing that. What he's trying to say is that we have something better, that Exodus has been fulfilled in Christ in the sense that we now have Christ himself and we worship in, the, in spirit and truth, as Jesus said to the woman in John 4. Exodus is merely a shadow, it says here in Paul's case. And why? Because again, the tabernacle that they built, though it was real, we have something better. The priesthood, we have something better. The the altar uh, where you brought sacrifice, we have a better sacrifice, right? We see that over and over again. But don't make this mistake. It doesn't mean that though it's called a shadow, it's an important shadow, certainly. Think about Exodus for a second where we are. 
if you're in your Bible reading and you get to our passage or you've been following along in the sermons, you get to chapter 35 and you're tempted to skip it. It seems like it just is a, a downer a little bit. In fact, for many people, if you watch like uh, preachers, they'll preach sermons all the way up to about the giving of the 10 commandments. And then they're like, okay, the rest of Exodus is sort of some details and they stop. And the reason for it is that the details seem um, less important than we want to give them to. And they might say, oh, well, in the ancient world, we just wanted to repeat stuff so people would know it. But I, I want to make the case right now that I think that God wants us to see very, very clearly how important these details are. What do I mean by that? Well, Exodus is 40 chapters long, about 13 chapters. So starting back in chapter 24, 25, all the way up to about 30-ish, we see 33, we see uh, basically the picture of God saying, here's how I want you to build the tabernacle and all these details. And if you remember those sermons, we see that those details were very, very important. Well, then we get to this section and we see those details repeated as they build. So the first section earlier in Exodus in the the latter part of the 20s and 30s, we see that God is instructing them how to build. And in our passage today, all the way up to chapter 39, we see them actually building. And so it's giving us the details of it. And then in chapter 40, we see them actually having built all the things that that were called to build and then God's actual presence among them and his glory shining in the tabernacle. So I've been saying all along, that each section we're in, I think, is the pinnacle and the peak of Exodus. And I've been wrong every time. The peak of Exodus, I believe, is actually the very last chapter of Exodus when the glory of God comes and fills the sanctuary in the tabernacle. This is a big deal. This is the picture of them actually doing it. In other words, though, think to yourself like God's importance of it's not only taking up 13 out of 40 chapters. So more than a quarter of the, the, this book is, is, you know, about these details but it's also the end of the book. This is the crescendo of the book. And so we're prone to want to look past our passage in Exodus. And Paul here calls it a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to the Christ. But though it's a shadow, it still points forward to the basic parameters of New Testament worship. In other words, I think one of our biggest mistakes that we make today as Christians is to say, okay, we don't worship in the tabernacle, so we no longer bring an offering. We no longer do these things like that. So worship now is mere sentiment. Uh, And that's not the case at all. When we look at the shadow of things to come, they give us a guideline to understand what we truly have more fulfilled in Christ. And the main idea of our sermon in Exodus, I think is pretty clear. We're going to see, if you go back to our Exodus passage, the main idea is actually very clear as it describes worship. Notice in, in our Exodus passage, the main idea is very simple. Worship God with your time, with your treasure, with your talent, and with your heart. We're going to see these basic principles laid out as a shadow in Exodus. And hopefully you can see how we're supposed to fulfill those ultimately today as a wonderful delight as we worship God. So let's begin in the beginning of our passage here in chapter 35, verse one. It's again, a repetition. All of this is repetition. So don't miss this. I, I think it's important to really for us to focus on maybe what's a little bit different than what we've already seen rather than just con- you know, completely repeat all the details. In, verse, in chapter 35, verse 1, um, we've just come from Moses and the people of Israel seeing the shining face of Moses as he came down for the law. So he's just been given everything. And now it's Moses telling the people. So now the people are getting God's word from Moses. And so they're hearing the commands directly. And the importance of our passage is less about the actual details as it is about the actual obedience of the people in every detail. And so in chapter 35, one, it says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them. So they're called a congregation, a gathering of people. He gets them all together and he says to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Now, we know that obviously they know all of the Ten Commandments. They know all the rest of the things up on the mountain. This is a summary for us. But we say in verse 2, he says, Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. I think the only new detail here is the not kindling a fire on the Sabbath day, which really speaks about uh, maybe cooking or um, constructing, but what have you. The point that's shocking perhaps to us is after all these commands on what to do, the very first command is actually to rest. And so we're reminded that, you know, establishing at the front end what they're about to do, we're establishing that it's worship, that they're relying on the Lord and that the principle of Sabbath we've spoken about, because this is, I think, the third time we've seen it now in Exodus, points forward to Christ as our ultimate Sabbath rest. It points forward to trusting in God. But I think the principle here at the outset of this giant construction process is a principle regarding rest as an act of worship at the front end. 
What do I mean by that? Go with me to Exodus chapter 31 for a moment. Exodus chapter 31. What is the purpose of this command? And in Exodus 31, where we see it given the most previous time in our passage, I want to point out just a couple details I think are helpful. In verse 15, he reminds us in the same way, six days shall work, be, work shall be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. So this put to death part is, is a serious thing. This, is, this isn't an option for them, okay? Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. This is different than simply the principle for the nation of Israel. This was a sign of them being his people. In verse 17, it says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. So what God's doing in this reminder is linking the Sabbath day celebration to God's work in creation. So what is that? What is the purpose of this? If you go back to Genesis one, um, you'll notice that at the very beginning, you know, God says, let there be light and there was light and there was evening and there was morning the first day. And we go through each day and then we see that God rests on the seventh day. The very, the very basic point is simple, that every hour and every moment of every day is God's. He invented it. He gave it to us. They're his. He is Lord of every minute of every hour in our day. He gave us 24-hour days, and he used 24-hour days. He gave us a cycle of rest. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we see that uh, Solomon reminds us that there's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to sow, and so on and so forth, speaking that there's a time for all the seasons of our lives. God's not only the Lord of you know, our, our chronos time, but he's Lord of our seasonal time. You know, Many of you that were sitting home, none of us, nobody I, I can imagine, uh, really imagine that we'd be um, isolated in our homes looking at a video right now, not meeting on Sunday, that we wouldn't be together having, having been together on Easter Sunday. We wouldn't be together in these things. God's sovereign over that. And so to worship at the outset, worship is in one sense, ultimately putting down the idol of self that you're not actually in charge of your calendar. So if you imagine for a moment that you're building these things and you say, you know, if I used Sunday to do this, I can get this done and that done. He wants us to remember that, no, 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 hold on. Uh, or Saturday in their case, you know, that, that God's given us this moment to stop and rest and to trust him. So when they gathered the manna, they would only gather enough uh, each day just for that day, except for the day before the Sabbath, when they gather enough for the next day, that God provided them enough. If you go to uh, Israel, uh, I remember what, like looking around at all these um, places for them to store water and how interesting it was. They'd have these cisterns everywhere. And the cistern was an interesting moment because in Israel, God would have to, you know, if you go there, it's not like naturally water and not water. Like the, they had to rely on the seasons. They had to rely on the, the rain for their crops. They had to rely on, you know, the springtime and they had to rely on all the various changing of seasons. In other words, God himself to take care of them. But instead, they would trade their hope in God for these cisterns, he said, these places to store water. And the water of a cistern was gross water. It was standing water, really. And he says, you traded your, your reliance on me for what you think is stable in these cisterns. And, you, and in fact, they were broken cisterns that hold no water, he says, I believe, in Jeremiah. So this idea of asking them at the front end of their construction process is reminding them that what they're about to embark on is an act of worship. And it begins with a trust that God is God and they're not. And this is so helpful for us because we don't have a day that we keep necessarily to the Lord. We have a principle. And I think the principle is spelled out here. Go to Psalm 31 and let's, let's kind of point this out. You know, in, in Colossians, remember Paul, Paul had said, some people observe, you know, one day unique and some people observe it alike, but all of us do it as unto the Lord. And, but the principle of rest and trust is important and it ultimately is something we need to see at the outset because it has, speaks to our worship. It's a, a shadow of the things to come, a shadow of what we have in Christ right now. Notice what the psalmist says in uh, chapter 31, look at verse 14. He says, uh, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. What he's referring to here is that God's in charge of the circumstances of his life. He's in charge, like we would say, of the seasons of our life. That, you know, you might not have chosen to have it work out this way. I, I personally hate when my routine is ruined. And so the idea that God is in charge of my schedule and my calendar is a reminder to 
crush the idols in my own heart as I worship him, to trust him. That if, if you get injured, that he wants you to rest. If, he, if you know, he puts you in quarantine, he wants you to be at home for this moment or not and protesting depending on where you stand on that. Um, but worship is ultimately trusting God with your time. He is our Sabbath rest. Remember in Hebrews 4, we see that Jesus is the Sabbath. Our rest is in Christ. And so to worship him with our time and at the very outset, he's calling them to trust God with the cycles and the ups and the downs of their time. Trust God with his plans, not my own. Remember in James, he says, you know, we say we're going to go into this town and this day, but it's arrogant, right? All such boasting is evil. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Again, it's a reminder of our time being his. But here's the fun part about that being a shadow. In the Old Testament, the idea was we're going to give him this day, But really the principle that's pointing to that we see in Christ really is answered when we ask this question, how much of my time really is his? Is it one day out of seven? Go to Romans chapter 12 and let's see how this shadow is fulfilled in the New Testament, hopefully. And maybe this will help us see what's going on in our passage a bit. In Romans 12, after Paul has spent 11 beautiful, glorious chapters describing the riches of salvation and justification by grace alone through faith, he then turns in chapter 12 and gives this wonderful word, therefore, based on everything he said before, based on everything we know in Christ, based on the the wonderful fulfillment of Christ himself. And he says in chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, I ask the question, how much of your time is God's? All of it, all of your time, not one day out of seven, all of your time, every moment of every day, your entire body is a living sacrifice given over to God. We are ambassadors for him. This is much higher than what we saw earlier. I'm gonna give this one day to God. He's like, no, no, no. I want you to give your whole body. I want you to give every moment to me. Again, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That is everything I'm doing, you know, when, when Paul talks about like to, to live as Christ and to die as gain, he's speaking about this idea. All of our time is his. We don't offer him a day. We offer him every day. He goes on and says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. He wants us to understand that as we grow in worship, as we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, we're going to be transformed by the renewal of our mind, of of knowing his desires. Again, worship, the true worship of God is not mere sentiment, right? He's prescribing to the, the nation of Israel exactly how they're to worship him. He's telling them what to do. He's saying, honor the Sabbath day, do it this, build it this way. He's telling them his will. And then they carried out in obedience. Well, he's also told us his will in the New Testament. And the beginning we just saw is that all of our time is his, all of it, every little bit. But the question we have to ask ourselves is what then does it look like to give all our time to the Lord? And in that principle, as we see it fully seen out in the New Testament, what does it look like to have my life as a living sacrifice? We'll go back to um, Ephesians 5 for a moment. I began the sermon and I was looking at Ephesians 6 and I mentioned that this table list was there. Again, I'll start in verse uh, 22 for a moment. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents as in the Lord. Verse five of chapter six, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. You know, masters, be good to your servants. Like this picture here is what, uh, what it looks like to honor God with all of our time. And so this isn't just about our chronos time. It's about our focus in our time. We always think we're accomplishing so much when we multitask and accomplish all these things. But God wants us to see that our worship of him as a mother, as a father, as a husband, as a child, as an employee, as an employer, is a full-fledged motivation to serve the Lord in those moments, in every season and role. As a preacher, it's to trust that I'm going to preach the word in season and out of season. That's his will for me in this, right? That's how we do. He says, you know, um, If we look at our passage here, look at verse 15, though, in Ephesians. He says, Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Paul's referring to our uh, stewardship of our time. And he says, watch out, make the best use of it. The days are evil, they're short. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
Do you remember in Romans, he said, look, as we are transformed by the renewing of our minds, we're going to understand what the will of the Lord is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, here in Ephesians 5, he tells us, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And he's going to spell it out. Do not get drunk with wine for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. This is basically don't be controlled by these other things. Be controlled by the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Before we go on, I think verse 19 refers to the fact that your Christian life, the will of God and your worship of him with your time cannot happen in a monastery. It's speaking about there's one another's here that we address one another with the Psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs that when we sing as a congregation, that's his will for us. We're singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So we've mentioned already, we're going to give him our time and our focus from, and notice in this passage, we're looking at from a thankful heart. He says, again, we're making melody Lord with our heart, giving thanks always. And verse 21, out of reverence for Christ. If you remember the, the Jesus's biggest criticism towards the Pharisee is he quotes from Isaiah at one point and says, you know, they, they worship me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And we see here that the motivation for giving God our time like this is not duty, but delight. It doesn't begin out of do these things so then I'll be your God. We see in Exodus that there's a sense where we're, we would be mistaken, but it's possible to imagine that he's just telling us these commands, do this and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But in the New Testament, you don't have any mistake of that at all. This whole thing is an invitation to delight in God with your time. This is, this is, this is the whole paradigm shift. It's a, it's a, a privilege, to, a delight to submit myself, to serve as a husband, to serve as a wife, to serve as a son, to serve as a father, to give myself in these roles. It's a privilege. And so God's pointing out, hey, you want to know what it looks like to worship me with your time? pictured in the Sabbath all the way back in Exodus, expand that and it grows and grows and grows until we see this, this play out in its ultimate picture now today. But there's so much more. Go back to our passage because that's just the beginning. And we go, go on to the, the, the next actual building passage. Ephesians 35, or Exodus 35 rather, verse 4. In this passage, we see them make a contribution. Everyone's going to bring a contribution to the tabernacle. Notice, and he says, Moses said to the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. And then it spells it out. He doesn't say bring chickens and this and that. He says, bring gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light. Basically, he's just going to lay out everything that God wants them to build. I think what's important here is there's a couple things. One, that God has told the, you know, Moses in this case, the commands on how to use the resources and what resources they needed. But the invitation is for the people to do it. God could just drop these resources from the sky, but Moses is inviting the congregation to take this contribution. Now, this is not a tithe here. This is an invitation to a free will offering. This is literally a picture of what the New Testament sees when we give. It is not a regular tithe. It's something different entirely. But what I want to pick, point out here is that the invitation is also linked to our heart. He says, again, take from among you a contribution to the Lord who, and whoever's of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. He's defining who's bringing the worship of God. So when we worship God, there's two principles we've seen already. One, all of our time is God's. But what about our money? What about the things that we have? Why do we take an offering? I remember when the church first started, uh, one of the biggest you know, things I had to really think through is how do we take an offering? Do we just have a box in the back and you know, what's going on? And I, I felt at first that you know, if we're not careful, we, we seem like we're ashamed of taking an offering at church. And that really struck me because I realized that you know, taking an offering is a wonderful picture and a principle of real, tangible, authentic Christian worship. Go to Deuteronomy 8, because in the same way that our passage um, about the Sabbath is pointing out a principle that we see fulfilled later, so too is this picture of an offering pointing out a principle that we need to see in our worship. In Deuteronomy 8, look at verse 11. Uh, notice what, what's the reminder here from the Lord. He says, take care, talking to the people of Israel, when they go into the promised land, when things are good. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Today, Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, 
And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. Don't, don't go on beyond this for a moment. What he's speaking about is when you're wealthy and you're rich and you're blessed. And we remember in Philippians, Paul says, I know the secret of, of having little and the secret of abounding. That, that there's a sense that God's going to warn them here about having much. And I know that in our culture today, it's, it's uh, appropriate often in our public arena to think about um, people that have more than others. But we live in a culture of covetousness. Every single person in America is more wealthy than almost anyone in history. I mean, for real, it's, it's amazing. We have changes of clothes. We have, you could go on and on. We are, by every estimate of the Bible, the wealthy ones. None of us can say that we're um, Solomon in that case, but we're the wealthy ones. And often we see people upset about parody, not, not real poverty in a real sense. What he's saying is when you have all these things, in other words, when you don't need the Lord seemingly for your daily bread, that's kind of what he's referring to, which is essentially most Americans. Like, you know where you're going to get your meal from, possibly for many people. And in verse 14, he says, when you are in this circumstance, watch out, verse 14, that your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That we forget our dependence upon him. Remember, Jesus says, the one who comes to me is like this little child. Not childish, but childlike, a dependent upon me. That that's true faith and worship in the Lord is our dependence ongoing, even when it seems like we don't need him, we do. And for many of us during this COVID moment and this government moment of all these things, we realize that anything can change and we are dependent on the Lord. He says, watch out that you forget him who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to, to do you good in the end, that God allowed them to have lack at times so that they would learn to depend on him, that he's causing us at times to not have the things we think we need so we would rely upon him. Think for a minute. He says, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. I remember the story when he talks about that it will be lest you say in your heart, my power and might gave me these things. The story of ne Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar uh, basically forgets the Lord God. He looks out at his castle and he looks at all the things that he thinks. He says, look at what my hands have done. And that very day, God caused him to be like an animal, fulfilling uh, his prophecy. And he was out for seven years and his nails grew and he was out in the wilderness and he was like a, a crazy animal until he looked and, and saw everything was from the Lord. And it says in the the glory of God and, and his reason returned to him and he glorified God. Every invitation to an offering, every act of worship in the Sabbath and in giving is reminding us of a few things. In the Sabbath rest, it was reminding them that all of our time is God's, all of it. In our giving, it's reminding you that all of your money, all of your resources and everything you have is his. It's all his. And so every offering is an invitation to trust him in this. It's an invitation to actually grow in faith. Think of this, to actually say, God, I believe that you are in charge of all the things I have. And I'm going to trust you and give out of a generous heart at the privilege of showing I trust you. We say all the time, God, I love you so much. How can I worship you? He's like, here's one of the ways you can worship me. I want you to give of your money. I want you to give of your money in such a way that shows that you trust me. And we're not giving to pay for things necessarily. We're giving as worship. You take this, this offering in this way. Now go to Hebrews chapter 13, because I want to point this out just a little bit, because this transformation by the renewal of our minds is something that is asked every time we think about giving. And again, the principles we see, Hebrews 13, are laid out every week when we take an offering. Hebrews 13, look at verse five. The author of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. See, the problem isn't having money. We sometimes mistake um, to, you know, to push back against the prosperity gospel, we sometimes embrace falsely a poverty gospel. But we see all through the Old Testament that God was fully pleased and used rich people in the Old Testament, poor people and rich people. Abraham was rich, um, Isaac was rich, Jacob was rich. We see after that, we see Solomon obviously was rich. We see Job was rich and wealthy. In the New Testament, Barnabas was rich. He's selling one of his fields. We see Lydia, the seller of purple, is a wealthy person. We see Cornelius is a wealthy individual. We see all through the, the Bible that there's nothing wrong with having things, it's when things have you that there's a problem. And so the offering every week is a chance to crush and to shatter your idols. It's an offering to say, have true worship of the Lord. Who is your treasure? Is it the offering we're asked every time we are given this ability? 
I mean, the, the better question of think about Philemon and the rest, like who owns you? That's the big question that's asked every time we take an offering. Go to Luke 16 for a moment. I want to point this out principally for a little bit more. Luke 16, look at verse one. Jesus gives this wonderful parable here of the dishonest manager. And what he's getting to is basically this guy that's conniving and finding a way to basically look good among people with his wealth. It's a, a parable of disobedience, really. And then God said, and Jesus says in the end of this parable, and he uses sarcasm in verse nine. And he says, and I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Now, look, I, I remember spending, like I spent so many hours on this. Really, I mean, is this truly sarcasm? And I believe firmly it really is. Listen, your unrighteous wealth doesn't make you friends that can do anything for you in, in regards to eternity. The, the, the idea that, hey, I'm gonna invest my money in these things and I'm gonna gather this influence because it's gonna help me. He's like, yes, let's see how that works out in eternity, right? He tells us and goes on in verse 10, one who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. That's the principle that we see in how we're going to respond to the, the, the bit of wealth that all of us have. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? The, this picture of God sanctifying us is a picture that we face every week. He says, if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, Will, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Money is one of the most obvious idols in our lives because it's something that we get security and significance from. We feel good when we have it, but right now when you don't know where your job's gonna be, where you don't know where these things are gonna happen, you feel insecure. Maybe you feel insignificant in these ways. And that shows you that just naturally, in the natural sense of the flesh, we put our faith and our hope in the idol of money, but money is not where we get our security and significance from. Again, this is a picture that we're asked to understand when we worship God in our giving. It's a wonderful picture that we see played out in the New Testament invitation to give. I refer to it every week, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I just want to give a couple brief comments here so we understand what's going on. I think it's important to understand that, that authentic New Testament worship of the Lord, again, is not mere sentiment. It is giving you know, our, our worship to God and our relationships, right? The way we use our time, the, the roles that we play. It is to give God in some sense an acknowledgement, an invitation to give him of our things. But again, if you're hearing this in the flesh, you're hearing this and just struggling with it, you might hear me telling you, duty, 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 you need to do this. And you say, well, how much do I need to give? How much is enough? Look at 2 Corinthians 8. Paul writes to the church. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now I know that false you know, prosperity pimps love to use these verses to tell poor people to continue to give them money for their dumb sweat candles or whatever they're selling you. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that this is telling us of something beautiful about worship. These, the, the people here in the, that he's referring to they, they weren't giving out of their, their surplus. They were giving out of their lack. They said they, they weren't just slightly having a problem. They had a severe test of affliction and it was out of an abundance of joy. It was the motivation wasn't duty, but delight out of an abundance of joy and out of their extreme poverty. They have extreme poverty, but they have an overflowing and a wealth of generosity on their part. As a pastor watching the idea that the church is constantly seeing people give in this way, it is an overwhelming picture it is an overwhelming picture of worship. He says, verse four, they begged us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They truly saw it as what it was, a privilege, that God's in charge, they could do it. This is again, not a tithe being offered here. This is a picture of people asking for the wonderful like, privilege of doing this. In verse eight, he says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. That, you know, that, that the picture of our love, our motivation is seen in our actions here. For you know the grace of our Lord. We say, how much of our money is his? Is it 10%, let's say? Well, how much? He goes, well, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He gave everything 
so that you by his poverty might become rich. The picture here is that giving is sacrificial, self-sacrificial, but not as a duty, as a privilege and a delight. This is an impossible thing in the flesh. The motivation isn't how much. The motivation is like, when can I do it? Or, or how much can I give? Not how much should I give or do I need to give? It's how much can I give? That's the picture that we're given here. He goes on in chapter nine, verse six. And he says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Every time a church takes an offering is an opportunity, an invitation to delight in the Lord. You don't have to take part in those things. God will fund his work one way or the other, but you are given an opportunity to be a part of that work. So many of you have given of your funds and we're going to meet people in heaven that were impacted by the funds that you gave. You are part and parcel of their story. I mean, this is an amazing thing to think through that you get to present to Christ our worship as we see that. It's just a wonderful picture. He says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Again, it's not a duty, but a delight not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, He goes on and says, look, he's given us everything. As it is written, verse 10, he's distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. It's an invitation to trust him. And it's a delight to be able to do so that trust him that he's going to take care of you. He goes on and says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which, is, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service, not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. This picture is a wonderful, full-bodied, you know, Penelope of grace on display of thankfulness, of a heart overflowing with the privilege and delight of doing this. And it's pointed forward to at the very outset in Exodus of the beginning of everything, God says, spells out, here's the offering, and they willingly come forward and they give so much. Go back to our passage because, again, worship is not mere sentiment. This, this shadow, though it may be, points these things out to us. He, it's not only what we give with our time. It's not only what we give with our treasure. It's how we give God our talent. In verse 10, he says, Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all the Lord has commanded. And then he spells out what all those things are. The key here, though, is that there's an invitation to do work, to offer God in worship your skills. So, you know, earlier when we talked about your roles, I I really think that fits under the the rubric of our time because many times we feel unskilled in our roles. I don't know how to be skilled as a son or a father or a husband. Like, we're just called to give that to the Lord. But we're also told that we are given certain skills and God wants us to worship him with those skills. And so at the outset, we see God establishing worship with their time. Give them, give him of your time, give him of your treasure. And here, give him of your talent. What does that look like? Go to first Corinthians chapter four. Man, what if I give God everything? Will there be anything left over for me? I mean, if I don't have any, how much time is left for me? How much treasure is left for me? How much talent is left for my dreams and desires? He's like, get rid of all of you, put your, puts death to your old self and find that the more, your more delights in the things that you get from going all the way in on the Lord. He says in first Corinthians chapter four, verse six, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos on your behalf, benefit brothers that you may learn by us not to be gone, to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against the other. Uh, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's speaking here about our giftedness. God has given you every minute of every day and every season. It's all his. Worship is an acknowledgement and a trust in that. God has given you every bit of wealth you have, every single penny. Worship is an acknowledgement and a trust in that. God has given you every ounce of skillfulness in your life that you have, all of it. It's all his. And worshiping him with our talents is an acknowledgement of that. What do you have that you did not receive? God's not like, oh, I need a holy Adam and Bezalel to build these things because I don't know how to do it. He's giving, he's using them to do this. Worship is an opportunity to remember that your talents and skills and gifts are his. Go to first Peter chapter four. After James, you see first Peter, first Peter chapter four, let's look at verse seven. Peter reminds us and says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers 
And above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Notice his reference here to our motivation, our heart, our love, this idea to love. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. In other words, not out of duty. When we want to show hospitality to people, it's not like, oh, how many, you know, how many towels do I have to give them to be nice? How many times do I have to invite them over for dinner? He's like, no, 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 time out. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That God's given the, the, these gifts in the church for the common good, we, we find out, as good stewards of God's varied grace. If God's given you a skill and a talent, it's his. You are stewarding his gift. You are wielding what is his for his purposes ultimately. And so when we worship God with our talents, it's an acknowledgement that our gifts are his. That's what that is. It's, a, it's, a, it's an invitation to these things. It's an invitation that we're going to see. Go to Romans chapter 12. I want to point this out as well. The reason I went back to Romans 12 before I finish this point is that I already referred to Romans earlier. Remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, therefore, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, then it describes how we use our skills. In verse 3, after saying all that, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. In other words, don't be like, oh, I have this skill, so I'm better than this person. And we know in Corinthians, for example, he talks about the various gifts in the body. If, if, if you know, if you have a gift of, that's different than another person's, don't feel so boastful about that gift. Um, you know, our, our head of construction here doing all this worship and construction has a wonderful gift in construction and they purposefully know that if I come out, it's not good. Uh, I don't have a gift, but thankfully um, he's so humble. He doesn't think bad about me uh, because of this, I don't think. Uh, he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same functions. I can't I don't know. I have duct tape and a hammer in my toolbox at home. That's it. Um, but, you know, I, I have lots of Bibles and books that I read. He goes, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. So it's not only an acknowledgement that our gifts are from God, the very gifts that we have for the purpose of these things, but notice what he says in this case of using them. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, in, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Listen, this is not only a picture of delight rather than duty, but it's asking us to trust God with your passion. Notice it says, it doesn't just say to do it dutifully. Look, if, you're, if you've been given a gift to serve, it's like, how much service do I need to give the Lord? He's like, no, no, serve him with what? Serve him in, 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 in big serving, right? The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation. I love this. If you're going to contribute in generosity, then do so generously. If you're going to lead, do it with zeal as unto the Lord. This is a wonderful picture of worship, an invitation to worship God truly, not out of duty, but delight. Trust him with your passion. That's the invitation that Exodus points forward to, all the way seen as the shadow is fulfilled. Well, here's the part that you've hopefully noticed that's been a theme all the way through. Go back to our passage. I just want to point out a couple things in this last portion. Again, it's a longer portion. I, I think that you, know, you could divide this up maybe perhaps a little bit differently, but I think this is the best way to see it. If you go back to Exodus 35, look at verse 20. I think the theme of their response is consistent all the way up to chapter 36, verse 7. It is the theme of their response to the commands. And so we're going to see them with their talents and their treasure and their time given as worship. And I want to point out a few things that we see that we've seen already in the New Testament that are in, in shadow form here. Look, look at verse uh, 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses and they came. Listen to this. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. And they brought the Lord's contribution. Worship was not at the outset of these things, it was never duty. Even in the tabernacle, even in the Old Testament, it was delight. The people that came forward were not under compulsion. They were not out of begrudgingness. They came forward out of delight. This is so different than the Pharisees, the, the rabbinicism that was of Jesus' day of like, here's the duties and how much tithe and how much this. There was no delight. Their heart was far from him. But here at the outset, we just get a snapshot and a preview and they fail again and again after this but they give a snapshot and a preview of what heaven will one day be like when all of our hearts want to do these things. When we have a new body that wants to be generous, that wants to, we won't have a war in ourselves, 
right? We won't have to crush certain idols to worship the Lord, right? So here we see that their heart stirred them. Their spirit moved them. If you go down to verse 22, so they came both men and women, all who are of a willing heart. Look at verse 24, everyone who could make a contribution did so. Verse 25, every skillful woman did so. Verse 26, all the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. Do you see this, this wonderful privilege, delight on display? Look at verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done brought is it as a free will offering to the Lord. Now we always wonder why in uh, Acts chapter five, when Ananias and Sapphira are put to death, they bring a field, they bring their house, they sell it and they bring it to the church, but they, they leave back some of the amount. This is right after Barnabas sold, you know, some of his field. So, and then they, you know, Ananias dies in the spot and Sapphira got, you know, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Well, what is, it wasn't so much lying about the amount that they offered. It was lying about the, that it was worship. They were bringing things to achieve, you know, people liking them to, to, to duty. What's the duty? Well, I'll give this much and I'll save some back for me. Their heart was wrong. In this case, you know, the men and the women, the people that were worshiping did so out of a, a heart of worship that God was building his tabernacle on worship. And so too today, when we take an offering, when we give our time and our talents, we don't do so under compulsion. We don't do so out of duty. We don't do so out of guilt. We do so out of delight and privilege. He goes on in verse 31 and, and talking about Bezalel and, and the son of Uri, it's pointed out that even his skill, notice his skillfulness. It says, God has filled him with the spirit of God and with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. So here's this man using what God gave and giving it back to him. Verse 34, God inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. God has filled them with skill. If we look at chapter 36, one, Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman, ready, in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence are the ones that went forward. In verse two, Moses calls them and every craftsman, ready, in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to do the work of the Lord. In verse five, uh, they say to Moses, the, the, the response of their heart of generosity was overflowing, as he says uh, in 2 Corinthians. Well, we see this all the way back here. The people bring much more than enough for doing the work. And so Moses had to tell them to stop. This is what it looks like to be restrained from their, giving their talents, to be restrained from doing these things. This is what it looks like to have a heart set upon these things that, that when we have so, to do so willingly, it's so much better. God doesn't want a portion of you. He wants all of you. And as we get that, I mean, it just overflows. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out. We're going to end the sermon with these, but go to Matthew 22. Because as you probably are aware, and I've referred to this multiple times, these passages speak about really the purpose of the law. And though we know the purpose of the law is to show us our sin and our need for God. Let's not make the mistake of forgetting that the purpose of the law is a shadow and a preview of how things ought to be. So when the Pharisees asked Jesus, look at chapter 22, verse 34, it says, when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer asked Jesus a question to test him. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, the way that he's asking especially as a Pharisee, I want you to rephrase it in your mind so you understand really the context. Really what he's saying is, what's the greatest duty in the law? And in the law, the, there's the, what does Jesus point out in terms of duty? He says, well, he says, well, here's the best duty. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, the greatest duty in the law was to delight in the Lord. That's what Jesus is saying. He goes on and talks about loving our neighbors ourselves as an implication of this. And in verse 40, he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You see, if we approach it from the perspective of law, it's like, how much do I need to do in order to be doing enough? That's the wrong paradigm. The purpose of the law is to say, how much can I do? You know, like, how can I give more? How can I act more? How can I, you know, accomplish more? But if we're honest with ourselves, when we see this passage in Exodus, and I want you to be honest right now with yourself, I can't study this passage and not feel self-condemned. And hopefully you can see why. Because though the law points out that we're supposed to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, when we give, we want to keep back for ourselves. We don't trust him fully. We have just enough faith for a day by day. When we give of our talents, we, we, we put the parameters of our time, you know, and, and we look forward to the time that's the me time that we have. And we might not say it, but that's what we do. When we think about, you know, our roles and stuff, we multitask and we do the best and like, well, what about me? And we do well for a moment. And then we don't, we hear a sermon like this and we're tempted to think the application of the sermon 
is, man, you better have a whole heart to worship the Lord. And if that was the application of this sermon right now, I would be condemning you. I'd be condemning you ultimately. But the purpose of these commands, the purpose of this moment isn't to merely instruct us in such a way that we'd be condemned. It's to point us forward to something else. If you go to chapter 26 of Matthew, I'm pointing this out because I think this is my favorite passage and regarding our heart. Peter sees Jesus' commands and delight. Basically, Peter's a great picture of how we probably might hear the sermon right now. It says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives and this is chapter 26, 30. And Jesus said to them, you'll all fall away because, because of me this night. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter basically says this, verse 33, though they all fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. You know, those guys in the Old Testament, they didn't delight in you enough, God. I'll always delight in you enough. Maybe that's what you're saying and you'll fail. Jesus says to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Be honest with yourself, Christian. You're not fully loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like Peter, you're a half-hearted saint. And Jesus tells him that. He says, I know this about you. And Peter then fails. He falls spectacularly. Now, if you're looking at the slides, you'll see I have this picture of charcoal. The, the moment in, spelled out in John 18, 15, um, 18, 18 particularly, where Peter, when he d- does actually deny Jesus three times, he does so, and we're given this detail. It's given to us in two places in scripture around a charcoal fire. And so that charcoal fire was the place of Peter's rejection. It was the place that Peter learned ultimately after rejecting, Peter, uh, rejecting Jesus three times that he didn't love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he didn't delight in him the way he was called to do from the law. He didn't delight in the Lord like he ought to have done. Fascinating, Jesus uh, dies on the cross, is raised from the dead and comes before him in chapter 21 of John. I go there briefly. I just want to point out a few things, very, very famous passage, but I think it's so appropriate for us today. Jesus, verse 20, chapter 21, nine, when they got out on land, so they, they see Jesus come up, up to them while they're fishing. He's raised from the dead at this point. And Peter's probably very ashamed because, you know, uh, he knows he betrayed him. Luke tells us that after he betrayed him, Jesus looked at him across the way and he saw him and heard the rooster crow. Well, here, after he's come, come back from the dead, he comes to the rest of the disciples and there's Peter. And when they get out on, on the land, they see a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. So here's Peter in front of a charcoal fire and Peter denies Jesus three times. And points it out and Jesus basically asks him in verse 15, you know, Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agape me? Which is the highest way of speaking of love in this case, more than these, more than these other people. And Peter responds to him, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Now in other sections of scripture, agape and phileo can be used interchangeably. But in this passage, they're used for contrast. Whereas agape is a higher sort of more fuller picture of sacrificial love. And phileo is a, a little more modest picture of brotherly love. So here's Peter Notice him coming back on his thing. I'll, I'll love you more than anybody else. I'll sacrifice for you. Jesus is like, hey, so do you love me more than these after all? Are you better than them? And he's like, no, I just love you like this. And he asks him three times, right? He denied him three times. So Jesus reinstates him three times. And the last one, Jesus says, do you phileo me? Notice what it says. He says, um, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you phileo me? He says, do you love me at least in this brotherly love? Do you actually love me this much? And he said to them, Lord, you know everything you know that I phileo you. Peter in this moment learned and accepted that he was a half-hearted worshiper. And he also learned that Jesus accepted him. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, what does this all mean for us? Go to Hebrews 10. I'm gonna end it here. Hebrews 10. I've referred to Hebrews multiple times, but let me just give you the basic point. Let's look at, I'm just gonna read it. Let's listen. Hebrews 10, one. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. We've already talked about the shadow. Great. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. The law does not give us the ability to truly love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's nothing that it can do to do that. And so it's a, it ends up serving in verse three as a reminder of sins every year. It's a reminder that we can't do it. We can't love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to, to cause us to take away our sin, to have this delight. Verse five, consequently, when Christ came in the world, he basically, it's, he says, you, you, I've given you my body. I've given you myself as an offering. 
Uh, We see in verse nine, he added, behold, I've come to do your will. Jesus came and he did worship God perfectly with all of his time, with all of his talent, with all of his treasure. He gave everything he had for the Lord. He worshiped God perfectly in the way we ought to and can't. And he says, and by this, by that will, we have been sanctified. We've been set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. When we worship God, he accepts it because he accepted the worship of Jesus in our place. Our worship is a portion of Christ's worship. He refers this idea, the Holy Spirit, verse 15, bears witness to us saying that he's gonna give us a new heart so that we can delight in him. And we're the preview of that, right? He says, I'll put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. Verse 18, when there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin, meaning that there's no reason, we're not giving uh, you know, perfectly in such a way so God w- will accept us. Verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let me say this another way. Therefore, Christians, since you have confidence to worship God with your half-hearted giving of your time, with your half-hearted giving of your treasure, with your half-hearted giving of your talent, give that anyways. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. What does it mean, a true heart? Be honest with yourself like Peter was, with a true heart. Know your true self, that what you're offering isn't what you could offer. Draw near with a true heart. How? With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the invitation to come to him, half-hearted saint, fully and confidently that, hey, I haven't been giving him my time. Well, give him one more minute tomorrow. I haven't been giving him of any treasure. I don't know what to give. I don't know how to give. I don't have that much generation in my heart. Well, start giving a dollar and see what, how he uses it. And you think to yourself, hey, I don't know how to use my talents for the Lord. Well, just try to serve and see what happens. This is an invitation not to be perfect before you get it. It's an invitation to fully trust in God's grace and privilege. And that exodus in the height of that shadow points forward to what we get to do today in a profound way. Let's take a quick look at a video. Let's pray. Father, as we attempt to give you our lives, all of our time, it's a mere reflection upon your work. You are Lord of all of our seasons, the seasons of our lives, and acknowledging it, even in the smallest ways we do so, is simply acknowledging the truth, shining out on you, changing our hearts. As we give of our our, our resources and we give generously, we're picturing your work in our hearts to cause us to do something, not out of a duty, but a delight, truly a picture of your work. Father, as we give of our talent and and we act and, and use our talents for your glory, Father, we are doing something that is displaying your work. You've given us the skill to do these things. You always through all of it are on display. And the very fact that we can come to you is displaying your work in our hearts to change our hearts through grace. We love you because you first loved us. We are able to offer to you this worship because you are working through us. And God, we know there's a time coming when our hearts will be perfectly and totally and utterly yours. But right now we are at war with ourselves. We have desires of the flesh and the desires of your spirit are at war within us. I pray, Father, for those who maybe have been discouraged about their worship, feeling like they don't have enough, they don't know enough, they, they don't, they don't uh, have the right concepts enough to go forward in their worship of you. I pray, Father, that we would confidently be able to go forward, trusting that as we dutifully delight ourselves in you, Father, we will see that you will grow our opportunities more and more. I pray, Father, for our church that as we Look at these passages, the call to, to stir one another up to love and good works that goes on in that Hebrews passage. We're, we're not meeting together right now. And, and God, we want to be able to do that. I ask for us to be diligent, to, to speak grace into the lives of one another, to encourage one another, to, to trust one another in the way that we use our time, our talents, and our treasure, Father. Help us to be a church that is fully encouraging one another to delight in you. And I pray finally for those that don't know you today, that don't delight in you that serve themselves and their own idols, that they would see that today, that they would see the law and they would realize they are condemned. They're unable to follow you with their ritualistic worship, that you would reveal to them their heart and their their own false God of self. They would repent. They would put their faith in Christ alone, that you would give them a new heart as you've done with every Christian, as you will continue to do. You will fill them with your spirit, that they would sign up for baptism on our website so we can celebrate when we come back. God, use this sermon for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.